this week on the Back Table Podcast. One thing I meant to, that I was thinking of asking you earlier, the concept or the thought of like biofilms and so like a patient having a tube, let's say it's it's been there for a while, maybe you know over a year longer than it should, and the patient still has eustachian tube dysfunction, still needs a tube. Is do you ever you know exchange it out? Or let's say you know this is a common example: patients had bilateral tubes. One tube has extruded, the other tube is still there. It's been there for like maybe over a year. It's fine. Do when you, you're you're going to the OR anyway because you're going to put a tube in the yeah. the other ear. So do, does that, do you know, do you need to replace that tube with a new tube because it's an old tube? Yeah. Go. Okay, those are great. Those are, <laughs> those are great questions. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Back Table ENT podcast, where we discuss all things ENT, and we bring you the best and brightest in the field with the hope that you can take something from our show to your practice. Our next partner has a product I use literally every day. I started taking AG1 because I just wanted to see what the hype was about. So what is this stuff? With one delicious scoop of AG1, you're absorbing 75 high-quality vitamins, minerals, whole food-sourced superfoods, probiotics, and adaptogens, whatever those are, to help you start your day right. This special blend of ingredients supports your gut health your nervous system, your immune system, your energy, recovery, focus, and aging. All the things. I take AG1 in the mornings right when I'm walking out the door. I put it in about eight to 10 ounces of water. I put two or three cubes of ice in it, and then the one scoop of the AGs, shake it up, and I'm ready to go and drink it on my way to work. AG1 benefits my lifestyle in the way that it gives me energy. It's very simple, and I can't always prepare every meal and feel like I'm always getting a well-balanced diet or getting all my vitamins and nutrients in. So it's something that I don't even have to think about. It has a bit of a tropical, slightly metallic taste at the end, but it's quite refreshing, especially when taken very cold. We do take AGs when we travel. It comes in these little travel packets um, and you can just get a little bottle of water, throw the packet in, shake it up. And it, again, is something that when you have on you when you're traveling, you don't have to worry about feeling that you aren't getting all the nutrients that you need for that day. AG1 is a small micro habit with big benefits. It's one thing you can do every single day to take great care of yourself. Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com forward slash backtable ENT. Again, that's athleticgreens.com forward slash backtable ENT to take ownership of your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. My name is Gopi Shaw and I'm a pediatric ENT. And I'm here today with my mamacita partner in crime, Ashley Agan. Hey. <laughs> What's up? I'm I'm a general ENT and I'm always happy to be across the mic, whether it be in person or virtually from my dear Gopi, dearest yeah. friend, co-host. Well, I've called you Mamacita even before the baby because, you know, you're a little, to me, you're my little mama, <laughs> my little hot mama before. And you still are, even now with a baby I'm just tow. a tired mama now. <laughs> always but it's amazing. Mamacita. 
it's it's amazing. <laughs> Baby's doing great uh-huh. and um, growing like a weed. So no. it's pretty cool to to watch her change and develop. She's um, four months now. Four months yesterday. So no. she is super cool. cute with the best laugh, the best little chuckle. Oh. Those those chuckles and giggles, it's <laughs> the best, absolutely the best. So pr- pretty cool. What uh, what are we talking about today? We are talking about something very exciting: the management mm-hmm. of ear tubes. Now, mm-hmm. it, you know, it is something that's very very practical. And no matter if you're, you know, super super uber specialized ENT to a general ENT city, you know, private group academic, you're going to deal with ear tubes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, d- definitely comes up. A lot for everybody. Yeah. So, you know, whether they're clogged, whether they're draining, whether the tube hasn't fallen out, there's lots of little things in clinic. So I guess I wanted to ask you for your clogged ear tubes. You know, mm-hmm. the, the let's say it's the two-year-old that comes in, had tubes, whether it was six weeks ago or maybe it was like, you know, six months ago, it's a tube check and one of the tubes is clogged. You got your mm-hmm. hearing test, let's say it's normal audio. And it's either maybe that type A temp or a small volume B temp. Tube looks good, but it's clogged. But looks clogged. Yeah. But the hearing's normal? But the hearing's good. So in a kid, I would probably not do much. Well, okay, it depends. So if the parent says, you know, we've been doing great, no issues, no ear infections, speech development's fine, school is fine you know, audiogram shows normal hearing and, you know, the tube just looks clogged. I'm like, I'll probably leave it alone. I'll probably just say like, let's just watch it. You're not, it's not technically really giving you any issues, right? In an adult, well, in an adult that will let me really examine and, you know, mess with their ear, I'll probably go in there and try to pick it out just um, because I feel like if it's going to be there, I'd like for it to be working. We put it in there for a reason. But kids are, kids are a little bit different or the kids are a lot different. And so it, you know, I I wouldn't want to traumatize or create, you know, sometimes less is more. But when um, if there's issues, obviously, you you might feel differently. So if if they're having recurrent ear infections and you really want that tube to be open and working, then I would want to do something. I would probably start with just starting drops um, to see if it would d- dissolve away that clog. I would probably use just like flocks and drops, have them you know, do it twice a day, pump the tragus to make sure the drops are really getting all the way down there and then kind of see them back in a short amount of time to kind of see if it's working at all. I don't know. What do you do? I agree. I think if they're, you know, asymptomatic and hearing's good, speech is good, they're not having issues with ear infections. Sometimes I'll just watch them and I'll also give the family an option if we want to try some uh, Floxin, Cibridex. And you're right, we do have to be a little bit more aggressive uh, when there are issues Sometimes I will do a little, it depends on the family and kind of what the the parent is up for. Um, every once in a while, I'll have them try a little diluted peroxide at home. So like I'll have them do half uh, distilled or bottled water and half peroxide, put it in like a little cup, like a tablespoon each, and then get a dropper and do like, uh, you know, a couple of drops, three, four drops with the tragus and then chase it with Cipridex. And I tell the family if the baby, if the child starts to cry, Hopefully that means that the tube is, you know, open because mm-hmm. the peroxide is going to um, irritate the middle ear usually. Mm-hmm. And I might have them do that uh, for about three to five days uh, until, uh, or unless the child starts to cry before and then just switch over 
to regular Ciprodex or Floxin for another three days and then see, mm-hmm. see them back and see how they look. But again, it depends on, you know, and I'll tell the family, like with the peroxide, expect that, that it, they could be, you know, in a little bit of pain at home and, mm-hmm. and then see what the reaction is. And if they look at me like I'm crazy, then we're going to just start with Sosiprodex or Floxin <laughs> and, you know, see how they do. Every once in a while, I'll have a family's like, no, no, I want to try, you know, what you think is going to be to maximize it. And so sometimes I'll do that. In terms of, um, you know, Papoose. Before you, before you yeah. move on, the, for the peroxide. Yeah. Um, so do you feel, do you have a thought about whether it's clogged with like what looks to be like mucus from the middle ear or some sort of like crusting versus like a blood clot? You know, like have you ever looked in there and you see like a blood clot yeah. that's probably from surgery? Yeah. And like do you feel differently about that's a, yeah, no, that, how you would treat it? That's a great question. So um, in terms of the blood clot from surgery, that's definitely I think where the peroxide probably is going to give you the most bang for your buck. And that's going to be the kid that either is going to be your first first post-op follow-up. Although every once in a while you might see it a little little bit later on down the line because they had like a bad uh, acute OM, motoria that also had some bleeding. In terms of really thick mucus, it makes me think of my primary ciliary dyskinesia kids or the kids that are like uh, under two and they're still in daycare or, you know, they're just, you know, 15 months and we're in the middle of January, um, they're going to keep getting those six to eight colds a year. And it's like, well, dang, we just had, you know, that odoria, you know, three weeks ago, two weeks ago, like it's just, you know, constant. And, uh, and I, you know, I'm not necessarily, I don't see it. And I'm not necessarily worried about close to Toma at that time. I'm worried about more of just these colds that keep mm-hmm. happening. You know, for my PCD kids, I will tell them to routinely do a little diluted peroxide and get one of those, um, blue bulb syringes, you know, the baby mm-hmm. nose ones that flare out. I'll have them then kind of suction their own ear because the diluted peroxide kind of thins it because it's thick. And then they can get one of those blue bulb syringes. I'll tell them to, it's going to flare out. So it's not like they can shove it in too deep to their ears, but I'll have a mark from the tip about seven millimeters or so, and then gently squeeze the bulb, put it by the ear and suck it out. Because otherwise those kids are constantly in my clinic getting Mm -hmm. papoose, especially, you know, the three to five year age. And at at a certain point, they're not going to let you even look in their ears. So this is something that maybe would avoid that because overall the thick stuff's gone and then they can get the drops in. And Mm -hmm. so sometimes I'll have them do that a couple of nights a week, just depending on, you know, you know, or even, you know, once a week, depending on how much they get, because Mm -hmm. it's just oral toilet for that population. And so those are the two that I tend to be a little bit more. And then if it's like mucoid thick stuff that's blocked I might just um, I'll talk to the family every once in a while if it looks like it's worth papoosing and suctioning I might do that versus um, trying some drops if I can see the tube and think the drops will go in um, and have them come back and if that still didn't do it maybe get it try to see if it's worth if it's loose enough to suction out the second time around in terms of a pick and trying to like do you know wax in the lumen that sounds lovely you know (laughs) Um, and it just depends on the kid and what I think is actually yeah. feasible. That that's not a part of my routine practice. I'd say yeah. sometimes they're it's like hard they cast too, right? Mm-hmm. Like you've taken yeah. the tube out, and it's a whole cast that's like you know two millimeters or something, which sounds kind of small, mm-hmm. but it isn't, and it's hard. And um, you know uh, that's not always. But yeah. I feel like that's in my adult in the in adults. I feel like that's kind of what I'm picking out a lot is like this little cast that's like some old you know, drainage or mucus or something that has kind of just 
occupied the lumen long enough that it just stuck there. And usually I can take like a little rosin or something and just kind of slowly do you pick it out. Do you peroxide and let it sit and soften it and then section and pick? Or does it set, tend to kind of work its way out? It tends to work its way out. Um, I don't usually... I don't usually do put anything in there. Um, I mean, it, it's all patient dependent too. Some patients just really don't tolerate you like kind of flicking the, you know, because it's gonna you're gonna touch the tube a little bit. But the yeah. those tubes, I think the that silicone material doesn't adhere to it very well, so it tends to kind of come out pretty. Like if you can kind of get an edge on it and gently just like you know tease it out, yeah, it'll slide out. But sometimes if it's like wax or something that's been pushed down there with a Q-tip or something like that, uh, sometimes I'll do like some baby oil. But again, I like don't want that going into the middle ear. So it's only if the tube is like really clogged and the wax is hard enough that I'm not really able to get it out with other instruments and I just really need to soften it up. You know, baby oil is really good for that. And that's so, and they're in the clinic, in your chair, you do a couple drops of baby oil, let them sit for a little bit. Yeah. And then just kind of try to suction it out or tease it out. And then, but you know, I've pulled out a tube before. Yeah. I was going to say that that happens. Yeah. Well, I guess (laughs) Um, in your clinic, an adult, you can just put a new one in. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, That's, that's what I've done. You know, if it, if it comes out, it's like, oh, whoops. I I think we get another tube. Yeah. And kids like, because most of the time it, I mean, you know, there are there is there are people that do tubes and kids in the office with the uh, what is it called the hummingbird the thing. hummingbird I always want to yeah. call it the butterfly the hummingbird but you know for for me in my practice I usually end up going to the OR um, and so the question is who when and why are we going because I you know if mm-hmm. we just put the tube in I always it always kind of makes me so sad that we're back mm-hmm. three years four months later because it's clogged and they're still having ear infections yeah. and it's OME and it. We're still or requiring orals or, you know, affecting hearing or speech. And so that doesn't happen often. But when it does, I'm always like, Ugh. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. okay, you know. Um, yeah, that's a bummer. Yeah. How long do you wait? Like, so, or, or and what's your follow-up? So let's say you see a kid and they've got um, a clogged tube that you just put in, I don't know, six weeks ago, three months ago, yeah. whatever it is. Are you going to, you know, try some things and bring them back every two to three weeks. And then, you know, if we're, you're not making progress at some point, go back to the OR, which, I mean, I know it's not like um, clear cut answer for everyone, but kind of what's your thought process around that? Yeah. So I used to be like, well, I'll see you back. It depends on how, you know, obviously, like we said, if it's otherwise hearing good sound field or good audio mm-hmm. type A temp, it's functioning normally. I'll, I might just see back in three to six months for a regular tube check. Um, I don't get too crazy. And I tell the families, hey, if we're back in the same cycle of recurrent ear infections, or if there's hearing or speech concerns or chronic fluid, come back and see me sooner. Mm-hmm. If it's the kid where, hey, we had tubes six weeks ago, the other side's straining good, the you know side that's clogged has OME, I might do more of a four to six week follow-up because that gives me a little time to see, are we still in the same habit of infections again, am I giving that ear eustachian tube an opportunity to clear? Sometimes I'll do like six to eight even, because I have to remember like every visit is time off from either work or having mm-hmm. to figure out, you know, child care. You know, it's a lot of visits otherwise. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. And it's different than uh, chronic otorrhea or 
or not chronic odor or odor that just doesn't get better. Right. Which does are you require... having them use um, drops th- that whole time? No, I might just do it for like ten days or something like that and see how they do, and then kind of give them an opportunity to see does it clear on its own, like the fluid mm-hmm. in the middle ear clear on its own. Does the station to get any better? Are we back in ear infections again? Just because otherwise I'm going straight back to the OR. Um, and I know it's only a f- five, 10 minute, you know, but mm-hmm. every time it's still like, okay, I want to make sure yeah. that it's worthwhile. Yeah. And it, a lot of times it comes down to like how how worried are we, right? Mm-hmm. Like what's, what are we, what's the risk benefit ratio and what are we, what are we really treating? Yeah. Because it's yeah. easy to like want to treat the tube. I want that want, large you volume just, you boot, boot ha- tip. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you want to have that Everything's pretty open. Yep. patent, you know, mm-hmm. um, tube that's that's functioning and ventilating the middle ear really nicely. And but, you know, I sometimes I have to like, yeah, remind myself, wait, the kid's doing fine. Like, yeah, um, don't worry. You know, just because the the ear doesn't have that pretty textbook picture. You know, if the kid's doing fine, then there's time. Yeah. So, which makes me um, kind of ask, what are your thoughts? So the new ear tube guidelines came out and one of the changes is, you know, not routinely using antibiotic eardrops at the time of ear tube placement. You know, I think there is some flexibility in the language, right? Mm-hmm. Of, you know, obviously if it's pus or something, uh, you'd probably do Cipridex after. Mm-hmm. But um, after placing the tube, if the is it worth still doing the Cipridex? And the recommendations are no. What do you think? Yeah. I mean, they just came well, out. I haven't changed my practice yet. I tend to do Cipridex still. So but I've do been I need doing to? this. I've been doing this in adults for a while now because there was a point when Cipridex got really expensive mm-hmm. and it just didn't make sense to me. Like if at the time of tube placement, if the middle ear looked healthy and not you know, inflamed. I wasn't like, let's say, you know, I went to suction and it was dry. Um, This might be for these patients who have like occasional like eustachian tube dysfunction related to flying or, you know, maybe they um, just have, you know, some issues equalizing the pressure in their ears or, you know, they like, so meaning, you know, the tube is for kind of some intermittent eustachian tube dysfunction. And so at the time of tube placement, they don't really have pathology in the middle ear. Mm -hmm. And it it didn't make it doesn't make sense to me to instill drops if it looks normal. Yeah. So I've kind of been in that habit on the adult side for a while, and it's everything's been okay. I still send them with a prescription mm-hmm. for Cibridex and say, you know, if you have odorrhea, you you know go pick this up. If you have you know pain or something that seems like you have an ear infection, then start the drops. So yeah, I think that that makes sense. Yeah. I think it it makes sense. I have to start figuring out how and when I would use it in my practice. Um, so I think for like, let's say the kids that are, you know, recurrent OM, I think with the guidelines that came out, oh, I, don't, I can't remember, maybe 2011, you know, where it's like, yes, you have the number of ear infections, three and six months, one year, but fluid on the day of the ENT visit. So that when you take those kids to OR, I think it's still probably 50-50 whether they're going to have fluid at the time of that ear tube or not. And um, then, the, so I guess then it boils down to, is there fluid at the time of the tube? Is the fluid a lot or a little bit? Is it purulent? Do you have a lot of bleeding? You know, is mm, yeah. whether it's just the myringotomy and the drums inflamed to, hey, my canal got a little dinged and there's some mm-hmm. bleeding. Yeah. Um, and I, I think I have bleeding. 
Whenever I put my tubes in, you know, there's always something, yeah. right? There's a little bit. Yeah. And if so I get bleeding. I think I would use drops. Uh, yeah. And so then the question is, right. so, you know, I have a colleague um, that does some Afrin, you know, and maybe we're, mm-hmm. if it's just yeah, a little bleeding or um, maybe a little bit of mucoid fluid, but doesn't look purulent and you felt happy with overall looks clinically healthy, the drum in the middle ear, are those alternatives okay? Or do you really not need to do anything? And so, you know, I feel like, <laughs> I'm out in my practice long enough to where, you know, I'm like, oh, what? We're changing up my routine. Whereas like <laughs> 10 years ago, right, we stopped doing antibiotics for tonsillectomy. We stopped doing, mm-hmm. you know, narcotics. And of course, that's just what it was. That's what I did. And mm-hmm. now I'm like, wait, what? <laughs> yeah. So, But yeah, I, I, yeah. I appreciate the fact that um, the guidelines are there because the cost of drops can be exorbitant. And if you're depending on where you're putting the tubes in, whether it's a hospital setting, an outpatient surgery setting those charges can be exorbitant. And so mm-hmm. in terms of practical purposes and what's actually indicated, I think it's helpful. Yeah, I, I would say if there are, if I'm suctioning any fluid, if there, if it's, if there's an effusion and I'm suctioning anything, whether it's like serous mucoid perillant, I'll probably use drops. Yeah. I don't know. That's my, my gut. Yeah. Reflexive answer. And, and if there's bleeding, I think I'd worry more about, you know, the tube getting clogged with like a, you know, blood clot. But, you know, like trying your trick with the the half strength hydrogen peroxide, you know, maybe it's, maybe it's, you know, do a little afrin at the time of surgery. And then if they come back with it clogged, then you could do the peroxide. But I don't know. I just... You know, you just feel so bad when you they when that first post op visit you look and it's a clogged tube. You know, it's just kind of like, oh. Yeah. So, um, <laughs> can I blame the know, tube on that one? <laughs> <laughs> and whatever you can do to prevent that from happening, you know, like you kind of it's. I guess it's just always about weighing the risk, benefit, yeah. cost, all that kind of stuff. Now, a quick word from our sponsor. Buying a home like the one I grew up in has been my dream. We had this great yard where my brother and I would run under the sprinklers. We had a big kitchen table where I told my parents I got into med school. Now I'm a member of Laurel Road for Doctors, where I got a great rate on a physician mortgage and was eligible for no money down and no PMI, so I could make new memories in my own home. Laurel Road for Doctors. Banking insights and benefits uniquely designed for doctors. See laurelroad.com slash doctorhome for full terms and conditions. Laurel Road is a brand of KeyBank NA and Equal Housing Lender. NMLS 399797. Now, back to the show. All right, what do you do about tube odoria? Cyprodex is probably the first most common, you know, thing. Like where yeah, that's so common that, you know, even when patients call most of the time, the nurses will just check and be like, I'm sending in some Cyprodex. And I'll be like, yep, that sounds great. Let's try that first. So, you know, I would say, I don't know, what percentage would you say? A significant part of the time that's going to clear it up and help. And I always tell patients to do like a, pumping the tragus. So, you know, putting um, a finger on the tragal cartilage and kind of pushing in and letting go, pushing in, letting go to try to drive those drops down to the drum and through the tube. I know the otologists have always told me that's important. And so that's kind of my first go-to. If they're in the clinic, I like to try to suction as much as I can. Because if there is a bunch of really thick stuff down there, you know, maybe the drops can't even get through the tube and where you want them to go. So getting it cleaned out as much as you can to le- allow for the drops to get there, I think it can be helpful too. Yeah. What about you? So I, if I can see the ear tube and there's just a little bit of drainage on the drum, 
I'll just have them start Ciprodex. This is if I've seen them in clinic. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, if I can't see the tube at all because there's so much area, we're going to suction and it's going to require papoose. And I always mm-hmm. tell families at the time of uh, surgery before we do the tubes, and that one of the things, especially in kids under two, otorrhea and having to be papoosed and getting suctioned or otorrhea, and that might be on more than one occasion sometimes, mm-hmm. is a very real <laughs> Mm, part so of you your prepare them that. I do prepare Be- them for that before yeah, surgery because as a parent you, you know that it's kind of a you know even it's five minutes we're burritoing their kid and mm-hmm. it's loud it's you know the, the yeah. child is screaming most screaming, of the time yeah. yeah and you may have to do it more than once it, it may not resolve the uh, first time around um, but usually that's kind of when I decide um, to section most of my kids that are primary ciliary dyskinesia I just section them every time, their ears, uh, depending on the age and their tolerability. So in my younger, I have a handful of younger PCD kids. That I just can't do it every time because they're not going to let me look in their ears. And yeah. those are the ones, as long as I can see the tube and their audios are good, even if there's a little fluid just kind of by the tube, that's actually mm-hmm. a good outcome. Because mm-hmm. it's, it's, it's coming out. The, yes. The fluid's coming out. And then the the kid, uh, the patients that are a little bit older who I've known now for a couple of years, they come in. They, you know, understand how the, um, you know, how their, what their pathophysiology, what's why and what's happening. They're a lot more amenable to it and they're used to it now. Um, what size suction do you use? In my kids that are under five, under three, three to five, I use a f- five suction usually okay. uh, for the uh, lateral canal, unless it's just so thick, then I have to start yeah. with a seven in the lateral canal. Yeah. And then, but what I like with the five is then I don't have to necessarily switch over to a three. I can at mm-hmm. least get it so I can suction, see my tube, see the lumen and get anything thick. I mean, they're not going to let me mm-hmm. get in with a three and get it, you know, we're just trying right. to make sure the drops go in. For my older kids, again, if it's thick, if I might have to start out with a seven for that lateral canal and then go to the five usually. Um, it's kind of, So that's kind of how I do it. Do you ever put anything in there, like in clinic to thin things out before you suction? No, not necessarily, unless I can't, unless I'm where the lumen's clogged. Yeah. And I mean, they're papoosed and you're on the clock and it's like, all right, let's just. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Not my older kids. Though. I don't, I keep papoose. Once they're like, you know, seven, eight years old, we, uh-uh. it's a little, you know, it's kind of, it's like <laughs> under five, you might be able to, you know. Uh, yeah. yeah. Um, okay. Yeah. So let's say they come in and it's still, you've suctioned their ears, you dried Ciprodex for about a week, but they're still having odoria. So we'll take a look. Sometimes with Ciprodex, you can, get some um, clumping, like the, you know, the medication will crystallize and you'll get this like white clumping down on the tube or on the drum that sometimes will continue to clog your tube. So you have to be mindful of that. Um, So you may have to clear that, you know, under the microscope in the office. If they're continuing to have just nasty drainage despite being on Ciprodex, Sometimes I will have them come back more frequently to where I can suction them more often because the thought being like, okay, maybe the medication is not able to get through the tube and into the ear to treat that mucosa because there's just so much drainage and they just need to have more suctioning, you know, more often. But, you know, I've never tried the the blue bulb trick um, that you that you're talking about with your kids, so maybe I'll start doing that in adults and see if that helps, just to give them some 
a way to kind of clear some of that so that the drops can get down to the drum and through the tube. I think that's only really helpful for that thick lateral stuff. Okay. Yeah. But at least some, you know what I mean? It still, it's I think, something. helps. It's something. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Especially if patients have, you know, drainage that's coming out of their ear yeah. onto the pillow, you know, like um, if you're dealing with like a large volume. Yeah. Let me think. I um, sometimes I'll switch up the drops. If an, in a patient who has really bad allergies or, you know, maybe is like a chronic sinusitis patient, sometimes I will switch to just a steroid drop uh, like dexamethasone or uh, Predforte with the idea that, you know, the middle ear is like a accessory sinus. Mm -hmm. And so in the same way that we, you know, use Flonase or Nasonex or some sort of nasal steroid in the sinuses, you're trying to apply some steroid into that middle ear space. But again, you need to be able, the, the tube needs to be open and working so that that medication can get in there and treat the, those surfaces. Sometimes I'll use some mastoid powder. You have to be careful with that because um, it can clog the tube too. But um, I have had a little bit of success doing a little bit of puff of that in there if the ear is just really wet and really draining a lot and you need something to kind of help absorb some of that. I don't know. What are your thoughts? Yeah, no, I, I this is, I'll probably see them back a little bit closer in follow-up compared to the clogged tube one. I might mm -hmm. say two to three weeks. Um, and a lot of times if it's still significant otorrhea, that patient's going to be back within about a week or so or that too, you know, sooner rather than later because they can see it, right? Mm -hmm. And I'll, I'll section again and I might, I uh, might try some mastoid powder at that point, but you're right. It's different than just like a perf that keeps draining or mm -hmm. a, a titus externa that just won't dry up. And so you're right, that can get clumpy and it can um, clog the tube as well. Um, and so sometimes I'll do the mastoid powder and then maybe have a, let that sit at home for a couple of days and maybe even restart something like Ciprodex or Floxin um, a couple of days later, like maybe two, three days later to kind of clear some of that and but, uh, you know, and and I guess at some, you know, I don't do this a lot, but I've had a handful of kids where, it's, you know, it's like we've been doing this now for four to six weeks and it's just still and every once in a while I might add like augmentin or something. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I know yeah. we're always like tell the pediatricians not to do oral antibiotics yeah. when you have tubes. But uh, every once in a while, you know, it's just. There's only, you've already maybe brought them into clinic, papoose, and sections two or three times, and we're still doing this. Um, mm -hmm. And I, 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 more than some sort of, you know, it's catching, you know, the one virus after, the, you know what I mean? Maybe they right, caught something right. else three weeks later, and here we are again. And so every once in a while do we have to do that. It's not common, but something that I'm like, well, I guess, you know, what else can we right. try? I like the steroid drop. I, I haven't done that as much in my kids, but maybe my older ones where it's more allergy-related makes sense. Yeah. yeah. Do you, what are your thoughts as far as, you know, thinking of the, the otorrhea as a, you know, as a good thing in that, you know, having the tube there means that all of this fluid isn't stuck in the middle ear and it's able to come out. And yes, that's annoying and you're seeing Oh, I love it, that but, idea. <laughs> you know, like, yeah. what about that reframing? Do you ever yes, have that absolutely. conversation with your families? Absolutely. So I actually had that recently on clinic uh, a couple of days ago. And um, it was probably uh, the baby uh, about 15 months had a ear tubes about uh, maybe six months ago. And mom was a little nervous, like, hey, 
you know, um, we've been on eardrops three or four times in the last six months for drainage. And I'm like, and when I look in the ears, the ears look great. You know, fortunately, they weren't wet or draining on the day of the visit. I'm like, that's a good thing. They're working. This is, you know, these are, you know, because of the tubes, you uh, have you had to be on any oral antibiotic since? And they're like, no. And I'm like, this is, you know, and I, and at the time of consent, I say that the tubes aren't going to make the ear infections go away. But hopefully they're hopefully they're less frequent, although sometimes, mm-hmm. you know, they still get those six to eight colds a year and they may still have drainage with all of them uh, mm-hmm. or hopefully. But hopefully they're less and less frequent and less severe. So they're not fussy and crying at mm-hmm. night and not eating, not sleeping, um, not hopefully not fevering, things like that. And so I think that the expectation of what the tube is there for is, is should be set up front. Uh, so right. that it's not all of a sudden that the, the infections are going to go away. It's just we manage right. them hopefully uh, differently and in a more uh, tolerable, easier uh, for the for the child and the family. But yeah, the it's reframing is very important. <laughs> yes, setting those expectations and you know what to expect and yeah, for uh-huh. sure. All right, what do you do with the tube that just hasn't fallen out? How long do you wait to consider a retained tube in the middle ear? Obviously, we're not talking about the external ear, but middle ear. What do you like? It's still like it's still in, in the drum, drum, or it has okay. So sorry, it's, not medialized. I meant okay. in the drum. <laughs> yeah. Um, sorry. So in adults, I try to just hold their hand for as long as I can and just say it's going to come out <laughs> because I feel like it's um, you know we put tubes in in the clinic all the time um, and it's it's relatively easy in adults. It's a little harder. It's a lot harder to take them out to kind of reverse that because there's not a great way to anesthetize the drum. Uh, it's kind of like a one, one, two, three pull kind of thing, which is uncomfortable. I suppose you could always go to the operating room to take it out, um, which I've done on a very rare occasion. So that's not super common. So, yeah, I mean, for, for me, it's a lot of just like, well, let's just give it some more time. Let's give it some more time. And in most in most adults, it's not... Um, it's not causing issues, like if it's still there and yeah. it's still open, like um, unless, well, so like, for example, you maybe you have that patient that's wanting to learn to scuba dive this summer yeah. and they really don't want, you know, they can't have that hole in their eardrum. That might be, you know, one example of a patient that you may need to speed it up. And I, I don't know, I don't know, have any tricks other than I would say you probably have to just take them to the operating room and pull it out and maybe put a little paper pads or something yeah um i don't know what, what are your so thoughts i just i take it out in clinic now because it's a papusa so first of all uh see if it's been about two and a half to three years uh that's when i start to prep the family so that it's not like uh because i just don't want them to end up the child end up with a perforation to me that's a bigger headache um i'd rather have to go back and put a tube in because we you know took it out and they're still having issues but usually the other ear will have declared itself right of whether the eustachian tubes are working or not. And so if we've gone six to nine months without having any issues in the ear where the tube has fallen out in terms of fluid, infection, things like that, and the other ear that does have the tube in the drum, and now we're getting to three years, I talked to the family. Uh, Most families don't want to do the general anesthesia for this. And if we can papusa, papusa the child, it's a Mm -hmm. Band-Aid. You know, right? It's a quick, like you said, it. and the, the kids cry. Um, you know, the kids <laughs> cry, but, uh, you know, families, I, I find that most families are okay with doing that. Now, if I can mm-hmm. barely get the otoscope in the kids' ear, if the family, if the mom or dad are like, 
you know, I sit down and explain it to them. Like, listen, they're going to feel this, but it's a quick Band-Aid. Um, mm-hmm. And we do have to burrito them. And the child is going to cry mm-hmm. a little bit. Um, and if the family say, no, we'd rather go there, or then we're, we're, that's where we're headed. And obviously, I'm not doing like a patch or something at the time of. We're just getting the tube out. If I can get another quick look to see right. about the hole and if there's bleeding, that I've, I've called that a great, <laughs> right, a great yeah, success. To get to, to get to look every at once in a while, you can't people, even look yeah. afterwards. You just got to get them out, right. and, and then I'll see them in about three months uh, and see where we are and things like mm-hmm. that. And so that's what and I've most been of the time doing. it just heals up. Time, yeah, most of the times it does. And then if we have to go back and do something because it's now been several months, or hey you know, the perf is now causing issues with hearing or odoria, that changes mm-hmm. the game a little bit. Yeah. yeah. Maybe I need to talk to I my adults to, about I, the <laughs> one, two, three pull. I used to be a lot more hesitant, but, uh, you know, I got to talk about Ron Mitchell every episode. Dr. Mitchell, hello. <laughs> uh, he, just started, he just does it in clinics. So I'm like, well, man, if Mitchell can do it in clinic, then come on, let's do it, you know. So yeah. if the boss yeah. is doing it, then, you know. Yeah, I definitely I will I bring it up to patients as far as like, you know, we can we can take it out, you know, it 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 hurts a little bit or maybe a lot. I don't know, I haven't experienced it myself, but I think in a lot of them if it's not an issue, it's just like, okay, let's find like we'll just wait. You yeah. know, we can, adults it's so it's a lot different than kids, I feel like. Yeah. Um and so we just give it a little bit more time and most of the time it will fall out eventually. Yeah. What about granulation that starts to form around oh. the to ah, yes. Oh man, that's such a a pain. <laughs> <laughs> well, we got to talk about that. Um, so when I see that, you know, sometimes I'll just try to start some sort of steroid drop. Sometimes, depending on where it is, if it's you know blocking the lumen of the tube, um, I will try to like grab it with some cups and try to like kind of debulk it or you know it's gonna it, bleed. It, it will bleed. bleed. Yeah, yeah, it bleeds. Um, I spend you know another fifteen to thirty minutes messing with it and mm-hmm. suctioning, and <laughs> it can be a real headache. Yeah, I don't know. I would love for you to share some pearls. Oh God, um, I, I wish I had some this. pearls. Tell um, me all your secrets. Yeah, right. <laughs> um, so I, I think that when it's sort of around or coming through, I definitely you know if there's drainage, I'll try to suction. Um, if it's huge, I might try to remove it. Ciprodex for those, I might even do oral antibiotics to cool it down. The one thing with any sort of granulation or anything like that, you know, I just want to make sure I'm not missing something like clusiotoma. You mm-hmm. know, sometimes yeah, that can course. be a red herring. It's not always. Uh, it might just be a bad uh, infection, but th- those always kind of make me a little nervous, like am I missing? So I really want to try to cool it down so that I can see if there's any skin, things like that. You know, if the tube has been there a long time, over two, three years, and we're dealing with this, Every once in a while, I might just take the tube out, maybe. I might try to cool it down first, see how they look when they come back um, and get it out. Because it could be, you know, now acting a little bit more like a foreign body type reaction. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Also, kind of give me a better exam if I am worried about something like clusiotoma. But yeah, those are tough. And they always, uh, they're hard to cool down, hard to get an exam. They bleed. And then in the back of my mind, I always start, that's when my like, you know, am I missing mm-hmm. anything else? Um, yeah. Kind of starts, you know. So in those patients, I'll do, let me see back in two to three weeks and kind of mm-hmm. make sure they know what I'm thinking about too, because I don't want them to be like, all right, bye. And then like, right. here yeah. we are with some something else uh, yeah, as an issue later on. But they'll usually yeah. come back. 
because they're going to have symptoms from it or, you know, something. Yeah. One thing I meant to, that I was thinking of asking you earlier, the concept or the thought of like biofilms and so like a patient having a tube, let's say it's, it's been there for a while, maybe, you know, over a year longer than it should. And the patient still has eustachian tube dysfunction, still needs a tube. Is, do you ever, you know, exchange it out? Or let's say, you know, this is a common example. Patients had bilateral tubes. One tube has extruded. The other tube is still there. It's been there for like maybe over a year. It's fine. Do you, when you're, you're going to the OR anyway, because you're going to put a tube in the, yeah. the other ear. So do, does that, do you know, do you need to replace that tube with a new tube because it's an old tube? Yeah. Okay. Those are great. Those are, <laughs> those are great questions. And it's funny because that, those are the conversations I have with the residents, right? Like, because this is the stuff they have to think about. Like this is actual decision making mm-hmm. in clinic, which sounds so simple because we think of just, oh, it's just a tube, but like it's not, right? So mm-hmm. in terms of biofilms, I, you know, I don't like to, so I think in pediatric, especially in kids that are young with tube otorrhea, if it just doesn't go away before I go back and switch stuff out and that kind of stuff, I might send them to immunology. I might think of something else like sweat test, PCD, other stuff. CF doesn't have it as much uh, in terms of OME, but PCD would and just, you know, like, what are we missing? Or is this just like your, you know, kid that gets the six to eight colds a year? And so I tend not to necessarily go switch tubes out for biofilms for those reasons. And I, I do think that, um, you know, oral toilet is our best friend for that. Because if I put a new tube in, we might still be in the same situation afterwards because we're still 15 months in a daycare or not daycare. And we're just getting these. In terms of, you know, biofilms for tubes that have been sitting there for four or five years in a PCD kid that I'm going to the OR with, I, you know, if the tubes are working, I kind of want to leave those alone too. Like, I don't want a big, I've had issues where, you know, maybe we try to put a new tube in and it gets pushed out. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? That's happened. And so I don't always do that. Um, I know I keep talking about my PCD kids, but those, that's their issues. <laughs> tubes, right. tube area. Yeah. And then in the child where, you know, the left ear tube is out, the right tube is open and working, but the left ear keeps getting OME or acute OMs, and it's been a year. I talk to the family, and I say, I guess my concern is I've had issues, one, where if I try to replace the tube, taking a good tube out can make the perf bigger, and then I can't get a tube in. That's happened, and that's really frustrating. Yeah. And then the second thing is, if I'm putting a new tube in, I have to remember that that perf now has been there a year plus, however long that tube may be. So I don't forget about it because I don't want that child to end up with a perf after. And so I always tell them, like, if it looks good, it doesn't look like it's halfway out. It's not blocked. It's in a decent spot, you know, meaning it's inferior or at six o'clock, whatever. It looks good um, to hedge on leaving it alone and tell the family listen, you might be, you know, frustrated with me three to six months down the line because mm-hmm. we may or may not have to go back. But maybe by then the kid is two and a half, three, closer to four. And I don't know, if it were my own kid, I'd rather go back for an ear tube than end up with a perf. I just, yeah. you know, perfs to me and kids are just a much bigger issue, especially between the eight, especially under five. Mm-hmm. I, I don't, you know, whether it's not just odoria, but it's hearing, speech, difficulty in, you know, whether they end up having to get a tympanoplasty post-op care success rate, like yeah. that that should be our next podcast. But <laughs> mm-hmm. 
Yeah. So that that's kind of how I phrase it. Now I know um, you know I have partners that you know routinely switch them out just because it's like, well, we're going to the OR, but that's just my personal preference. I think. Yeah. Um, I don't know. Yeah, I've had that same feeling before where you you pull out a perfectly good tube, perfectly good but old. Yeah. You know, we'll say quotes old, and then when you put the replacement tube in, that hole is just it's it's too big. Yeah. Right? It's big, and so you're like. Maybe putting a piece of gel foam or something to just kind of give you some extra something to hold it in place because it just looks like it's, got it's just fallen. sitting there, mm-hmm. you know, kind of on the edge yeah, of a big perf. And, yeah, when you take a, yeah. a tube out, there might be a little wax on the drum. And so when you take the tube out, some of that squam, the drum comes mm-hmm. with you or, you know, it just the bottom of the the medial end of it kind of, you know, and I like mm-hmm. it. Like I like that the fact that um, when you pull a tube out, it refreshes the edges, right? Like the right. act of pulling it out kind of is that sort of freshening it up for epithelialization. But man, and then you end up with something bigger, can't get anything in. And I've had kids that end up with perfs. I'm just like, oh, gosh, why? Mm-hmm. So I don't know. That's just my personal opinion on it. Yeah, but you're but you're right. It's a it's a conversation to have with the family, mm-hmm. and that's you know a lot of medicine is that shared decision making and. You know, depending on the kid, maybe the the risk of a, a second anesthesia event absolutely. in three months is really a big deal. Yeah, and absolutely. Maybe, you know, maybe their malignant hypothermia family history yeah. or a cardiac kid yeah. or absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. So no, there's not not uh, one size fits all, right? So. Yeah. Yeah. What is there? I mean, okay, really quickly, just a yes, no. T-tubes, no T-tubes. You don't have to do a yes or no. <laughs> um, most of the time, no. Yeah, I don't, like um, I don't. I don't like them that much. But uh, in the right patient, you know, it's there, there are some patients where maybe it's worth a try. Like I had, I put in a T two the other day in a patient who she had a, I forget, she had a, um, a skull based tumor that basically, you know, uh, caused her eustachian t- t- tube to be obliterated on one side after her surgery and radiation, and everything like that. So she. She basically does not have a station tube on one side. It isn't yeah. going to, is yeah. always going to need a tube. And so we talked about, you know, the benefits of having a T-tube and it being there, you know, being able to stay in longer and blah, blah, blah. And the risk of it causing a perforation compared to like a smaller pepperella tube or something like that. You know, she's one of those patients who is a lot of anxiety with even just looking in the ear and, you know, so the idea, you know, getting her to put a tube in in clinic was a big feat. There was a lot of like hand holding and like talking her through allowing me to do that. And so it was just like the best plan was like, OK, this is potentially a one time thing that we can do that will last us longer. Maybe it causes a perf. If it does cause a perf, you know, maybe that wouldn't be such a bad thing because you don't have a eustachian tube. Yeah. Um, you know, if it causes some hearing loss, you kind of need hearing aids anyway, because you've got some sensory neural loss as well. Yeah. You know, it was, but it was a long conversation um, because as you're alluding to, like T-tubes are not my favorite thing <laughs> um, because, you know, the I always think about, you know, the times when I put in a T-tube and I see patients back in clinic and it's just sitting in a perf. Yeah. 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 It's just like, perf. it's, it's there, but it's just kind of got this spotlight on yeah. it it's just the perf it's just sitting right there I, yeah. yeah it's kind of cringy yeah i don't know what what are what are your thoughts initial gut yeah i'm like Ugh, i don't like them no but I, I think what you describe as like you know patient selection is probably the most important thing um i used to 
kind of be like, well, if it's been, you know, more than three or four sets and they're seven, six to eight years old, that might be something to consider, you know, and was a lot more open to them. But um, I agree. I find that they leave really big perforations sometimes. Usually those kids that are having that many sets of tubes um, have really thin eardrums. Um, they're pretty atrophic. And so when you're trying to get the T-tube in, everything kind of tears apart, I feel like. Um, and then I don't know how much of a service I'm doing. And so I, I, tend, to, I tend to lean away uh, from them. Uh, that being said, you know, you do have a handful of kids that have had a history of radiation to the uh, head and neck for, um, you know, and so that might be somebody to consider them in. But, uh, you know, it just depends. I agree. Um, but I'm pretty... Uh, it, that's one where it's a good conversation with like a we need to sit down because parents will ask, hey, I want those permanent ones. I want those, you know, the ones that are the permanent ones. And, um, you know, I, I kind of tell them, you know, the some of the issues that can come along with them. But, yeah, it, it, I think there's there's a role, um, but right, it's got to be discussed and thought out, I think. So, yeah, for sure. Yeah. Man, this was a very stimulating conversation on the management of tubes. <laughs> I mean, I'm impressed that that we were able to talk about so much. I guess there's more to it than you. Than you well, I was like, I was like, I don't know how we're it. Yeah, yeah, I know. I know. And I'm sure there's other things. I, if there's, oh, for sure. Yeah, if there's anybody out there that has more on the management of ear tubes or other common ENT things that. You know, it's sometimes it's practice dependent, really, what you see. Uh, these conversations, I think, are great to reach yeah, out to Yeah, I'm us. sure there's, I'm sure we'll, hopefully we'll get feedback from from people about all the different ways these topics can be managed. Because it's, it's one of those things that's just so common and um, probably depending on, you know, where you practice and your resources and all those kinds of things, it, it affects, you know, how you manage it. But uh, good idea. <laughs> this was great. All Shall right. we put a pin in it? I think this we plane land this is plane? ready to land. I think it is. <laughs> I've been trying to say that in the prior ones. It just doesn't sound as good. I will leave that to you. Well, it's been a pleasure. Always, <laughs> always a pleasure to to spend my weekend mornings with you. Likewise, Ash. Likewise. Uh, you can find us on SoundCloud, Spotify, iTunes, Apple, and Ghana. Please follow us on Instagram and Twitter at underscore Backtable ENT. We love feedback. Reach out to us for topics, ideas, speakers. If you ever want to come on the show... And I think it's a wrap, Mamacita. Yes, that's a wrap. Like, subscribe, share. That's a wrap. We'll see you next time. (laughs) Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars, and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, direct message us at underscore backtable ENT on Instagram, LinkedIn, or Twitter. Backtable ENT is hosted by Gopi Shaw and Ashley Agan. Our audio team lead is Karen Yen with support from Caleb Hodson and Ness Smith-Savadoff. Design and digital marketing led by Brian Schmitz with support from Taylor's version Hess. Social media and PR by Chi Ding. Thanks again for listening and see you next week. <laughs>